Welcome to Oncofarm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I am an associate professor of pharmacy practice, and I'm coming to you from Mount Home, Tennessee, in my office at the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. A um, probably proud uh, supporter of uh, of this podcast. So busy week, uh, busy busy introductory period to June uh, with uh, ASCO's annual meeting going on. So we're going to be recapping. Um, some of the big things from ASCO or some of the things that I'm interested in from ASCO. Um, trying to hit on, on a couple different topics, big studies, studies um, maybe that are uh, most relevant to oncology pharmacists uh, near and far. And if you look at the, the discussion around ASCO, a lot of people are saying uh, the big theme was less is more. Um, and maybe that's true. There were some certainly some big uh, publications looking at less chemo being as effective in breast cancer and some breast cancer patients, less trastuzumab, which we talked about previously on the Persephone, uh, omitting uh, nephrectomies in metastatic kidney cancer patients. Um, so <clears throat> it wasn't really less is more, it's like less is less, but there's lots of other stuff to talk about. And I'm going to kind of get through this as I can. Uh, it was a very busy time following ASCO and thank goodness for so many great uh, pharmacists and physicians on Twitter that were live tweeting what was going on. It it, it really uh, allowed me to follow as if I was there, even though I had not attended, even though I would have loved to have gone to ASCO. Uh, love Chicago. Grew up in the, the cornfields of Indiana, not far from Chicago, uh, in the northern part of the state. So I know the city well, have a fondness for it. Uh, so let's get let's get into this. We're going to start with some breast cancer studies, then some non-small cell lung cancer studies, some myeloma stuff, and end with couple hodgepodge things. Uh, you might want to grab a beverage or a snack. This may take a while. So <clears throat> first I want to talk about uh, the Taylor RX study. This was one of the plenary sessions. Um, this was uh, an e a cooperative group study. This was not an industry-sponsored study. Cooperative group studies, which are the best, um, usually, uh, at least my favorites. Uh, 10,000 patients, uh, pretty big number in breast cancer, and these were all uh, hormone receptor positive, HER2 negative, uh, and they were all node negative as well. And um, there were a couple parts to this study. So imagine anybody with breast cancer who's node negative, uh, ERPR positive, HER2 unamplified, a most common presenting breast cancer patients you would see in clinic. Uh, they were given the 21 gene recurrence score, or Oncotype DS, those that were low risk for recurrence, just got endocrine treatment, those that were high risk, just got chemo, and those who were had an, a recurrence score via Oncotype DX of 11 to 25 were randomized to chemo um, and hormonal treatment or just hormonal treatment alone. Um, and uh, the hormonal treatment alone was like 90-some percent, I think, AI if you were postmenopausal, 80-some percent tamoxifen if you were premenopausal, pretty standard. Um, the most common chemotherapy regimen was TC, so uh, docetaxel cyclophosphamide, and then 36% had an anthracycline-based regimen, most likely AC. Um, so the, f the primary endpoint was invasive uh, disease-free survival, and uh, it was basically the, the same. It, it was kind of a, a backdoor non-inferiority study, so the five-year invasive disease-free survival rates were 93.1% versus 92.8%, so uh, basically 93% in both groups, um, numerically favoring the chemo group, uh, nine-year invasive degrees disease-free survival. So uh, with hormone-positive breast cancer, you really need this long follow-up. To just to share an example, this past this month we had a patient, uh, hormone-positive breast cancer, recurrence 18 years after diagnosis, which 
It's not the first time I've seen that. So the median follow-up is seven and a half years. So so kudos for a good long follow-up, but um, still probably more is needed. Um, but the nine-year invasive disease-free survival rate was uh, 83.3%, um, uh, and similar in in the uh, the hormone alone group. So. Um, the take-home point and what made the news is that a lot of women, and whether it's 50% or whatever, a lot of women with breast cancer may now be able to omit chemotherapy in that intermediate risk recurrence score group. There are some cautions though. If you look in the subgroup analysis, uh, women under the age of 50 and those at that higher recurrence score in the intermediate range, so 16 to 25, uh, as well as those who were premenopausal, there was a suggestion of benefit from chemo. So I think certainly fewer women will will be offered chemo or will have reason to accept chemotherapy in the intermediate risk group, certainly those at 11 to 16. But the younger women, premenopausal, uh, if that recurrence score is above 16, maybe still should receive chemo. Um, but that was the big study, Taylor Rx, that made uh, the news. That was a big one. Um, if we go back to the bonus pod that we did, Persephone, we talked about uh, the abstract had this... Uh, kind of concerning language that heterogeneity uh, was seen in some uh, stratification variables. So specifically, it's looking at what was the chemotherapy that was along with that. And in case uh, you don't remember or missed that bonus pod, Persephone was basically looking at, uh, this was a a UK study uh, in the United Kingdom looking at 12 months of trastuzumab versus an abbreviated six-month course of trastuzumab in adjuvant breast cancer patients. And there was no difference between the six and 12 month if you had an anthracycline-based chemo regimen or an anthracycline and taxane-based regimen. But if it was just a taxane-based regimen, um, that actually favored 12 months, uh, a hazard ratio of 2.47 with a confidence interval that doesn't cross one. So based on that, if if a woman is just receiving a taxane-based regimen, and that may be a patient who has borderline uh, heart failure. Uh, it would be maybe a reason to not have an anthracycline. It seems that 12 months of, of, of trastuzumab is, would still be preferred for those women. And of course, one of the, the endpoints highlighted in the Persephone study was, was fewer uh, cardiac events or incidence of LVEF uh, decrease in the uh, in the in the six month arm, uh, four four versus eight percent is personally kind of in the margin of error. Um, the trastuzumab and pertuzumab study had the same rates of, of you know heart failure, cardiac dysfunction, four and eight uh, percent, not in the way that you would think that the combined or the dual HER2 had less there. So that may be uh, a little bit of, of just chance and variation. So I don't hang my hat too much on that, but certainly in those women. Uh, maybe getting anthracycline, we can give them an abbreviated course of trastuzumab, which uh, is good for everybody and good for uh, the pocketbook as well. The next breast cancer study, uh, Sandpiper, which is a PI3 kinase inhibitor, tasilisib, 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 plus full vestrant was better than full vestrant alone. And this was um, 500 patients, who had uh, progression or recurrence falling in aromatase inhibitor. Uh, they were randomized to either uh, tasilisilib or fulvestrin or fulvestrin alone. Now, this is a PI3 kinase alpha inhibitor, which is um, the, the most specific to the alpha isoform uh, that we've seen. Uh, Idalalisib is just already on the market as a PI3 kinase inhibitor, is specific to delta, and then copainlisib is alpha and delta. This is just alpha. And these PI3 kinase inhibitors, 
not these three, but many of them have been studied over and over again and, and really are, are fairly toxic. That's what holds them down. Uh, the primary endpoint here was invasive progression-free survival on that favored uh, tessalicylib 7.4 months versus 5.4 months, uh, an overall response rate of 28% versus 12%. Uh, so certainly, certainly more active and has an activity. Now, there was more toxicity in the uh, tessalicylib group, mostly diarrhea, hyperglycemia, and colitis. And tellingly, the discontinuation rate was just shy of 17% in tessalicylib uh, versus a 2.3% with fulvestrin alone, and almost half of those were GI events, mostly diarrhea, but obviously some colitis there as well. So that's concerning moving forward. Not sure there's gonna be a big uh, market for this if it does get approved, because most of these women were in the pre-cyclin dekinase four and six era. Most of these patients now would go on to palbocyclib or ribocyclib, I would guess. And then finally, a supportive care study, uh, SWOG S0927, looking at omega-3 fatty acid supplements to decrease um, aromatase inhibitor arthralgia. There is uh, a couple publications out there that have investigated this in a, uh, in a single arm manner, which doesn't really tell you a whole lot. Uh, there are, um, there's even one uh, publication I've read where they just flat out recommended omega-3 fatty acids. And when I read that a couple of years ago, I was like, where do they get this? And there's no supporting evidence. So now here's some evidence with a little bit of a caveat. So this was a study of 250 women, uh, 110 of which, of whom, had a BMI or body mass index greater than or equal to 30. So these were obese. And they measured pain by the brief pain inventory. And those on the omega-3 fatty acid supplementation had a decrease in their BPI score uh, by decreasing by 2.89 points compared to 1.49 points in placebo, which is one of the reasons you can't do a single arm study and it mean anything because the placebo group benefited as well. Now this was statistically significant, P equals 0 0.02. Uh, you also saw a decrease in triglycerides in these obese women, so perhaps that is the mechanism by decreasing serum triglycerides, there's less inflammation, I don't know. I haven't been able to read what that is. Uh, whether or not this is really meaningful clinically, um, I think that if it decreased arthralgia, that's great. On a larger scale, we'd love for that decreased toxicity to lead to improved adherence. If there's one thing we can do to help prevent recurrence with hormone-positive breast cancer, uh, it's probably getting women to be more adherent uh, to their hormone therapy. And to say more, ad more adherent makes it sound like uh, the women aren't doing their part, but it's the side effects. If we could have a drug or omega-3 fatty acid supplementation, they could minimize the side effects without uh, compromising the effectiveness of the hormonal agent, uh, then that would be great. And that's something that should probably be investigated as well. Um, there's a long history of oncology of drugs to try to decrease toxicity of chemo, also showing decreased efficacy. So I'd love to see some more research on the mechanism behind this, um, decreasing arthralgias, uh, and why it's only in obese women and not uh, smaller women. Okay, so obviously a lot more breast cancer research was presented, uh, either uh, in the middle of the research or, or uh, fully completed at ASCO. We're going to move now into some non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, Keynote 42, this was uh, a plenary and, and didn't maybe add as much as, as maybe you would have thought. So this is looking at um, pembrolizumab versus chemo uh, in non-small cell lung cancer patients with the tumor proportion score PDL1 of greater than uh, 1%. And this differs from Keynote 189 
which was Pember plus chemo is better than chemo alone, and that keynote 189 was just non-squamous patients, mostly adeno. This is squamous and non-squamous, and patients were randomized to pembrolizumab alone, that's about 600 patients, and then another 600 were randomized to chemo, either carbopaclitaxel, if squamous histology, or carbapemetrexid, if non-squamous. There was an overall survival benefit uh, in favor of pembrolizumab, and that survival benefit was greater the more PDL1 was expressed. So a tumor proportion score of more than 50%, their hazard ratio was 0.69, more than 20%, 0.77, and more than 1%, 0.81. What's the significance of this in the long run? We don't know. If it more than 50%, most of these patients, um, probably you're thinking Pembro alone. Um, just more than 1%, maybe you're doing Pembro plus chemo based on Keynote 189 if it's non-squamous. So in the grand scheme of things, what does this mean? Um, the progression-free survival data are still immature, and that's ongoing. So that may add some clarity, maybe not, but um, again, some people on Twitter were puzzled as where did this 20% cutoff for PDL1 tumor proportion score come from? That's the first time that had been seen. Uh, as I've said before on this podcast, the best biomarker is still yet to be found if it is a single biomarker or a combination of biomarkers. So the story is still being written currently for immunotherapy in non-small cell lung cancer, but it's in progress of being written, certainly. Um, the next lung cancer study I'll talk about is a phase one study, um, and it's uh, LOXO292 is the name of the investigational compound in RET positive, not RET like my friend RET, who may or may not listen to this podcast, and he'll text me if he hears this. That's how I'll know if you're listening, RET. Uh, RET positive, non-small cell lung cancer. This was looking at any RET positive like RET mutant or fusion protein uh, RET amplification. So there are some papillary thyroid cancers, pancreatic cancer. Most of these were non-small cell lung cancers. And again, the phase one study goal is to determine the dose-limiting toxicity and maximum tolerated dose of the drug. In this study, there was no dose-limiting toxicity. So they could, they could the phase two will be the highest dose that they used here. Um, and there was an overall response rate of 65% in the non-small cell lung cancer cohort. That's 17 to 26 patients. So we're talking 25 patients here, not a lot. Now, the waterfall plot for this is impressive. And a waterfall plot, uh, let me describe this if you're not familiar with this in your mind. Imagine a, um, imagine a T, a capital letter T that then you shift counterclockwise 90 degrees. So you, and think of that as a graph. Um, and usually when we think of a, a graph uh, looking at survival curves or anything like that, you have the x-axis and y-axis meet in the lower left-hand corner, like if you were holding up uh, your left hand to make the letter L. In this case, the waterfall plot, the x-axis uh, does not intersect with the y-axis uh, at the point, it intersects in the middle. And so what you'll see is for each patient, there will be a bar graph, and that bar graph will go up if the tumor gets bigger, and it will go down if uh, the tumor gets smaller. And it's called a waterfall plot because it will go from one end to the other. So every patient will be lined up from, uh, on the very left, you'll see the patient who had the most tumor increase, and on the right, the tumor that had the most tumor decrease. And uh, so it kind of looks like a waterfall cascading along. In this case, all the patients had some tumor decrease, maybe not enough to be called a partial response, which would be a 30% decrease in the target lesion based on resistance criteria. 
but the waterfall plot goes down for every single patient. So everybody had some sort of benefit from the RET inhibitor, um, uh, which is great. So 100% tumor decrease, although only 65% um, overall response rate. Now, if this is confirmed in a larger study, we're going to end up with this LOXO-292 approved based on phase two response rates, probably if, if, uh, if history holds true, which means your metastatic non-small non -small cell lung cancer patient in the future is going to require EGFR, ALK, uh, BRAF V600E, RET, uh, PDL1. I'm probably forgetting some. There's just so many targets now in non-small cell lung cancer, and each of these targets make up only one to two to three percent. Um, so we're going to end up seeing next-gen sequencing used a lot upfront diagnosis in these non-small cell lung cancer patients as well. I think. Uh, moving into myeloma. Uh, as we kind of wind down here, uh, the podcast, so uh, a publication of CAR-T treatment, so chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy in myeloma. This is BB2121, and it's an anti-B-cell maturation antigen. That's the target, BCMA, B-cell maturation antigen. Uh, small numbers, so 43 patients, some of those were in the dose uh, expansion cohort, somewhere in the dose escalation, or the dose escalation, where they increase the dose or the dose expansion. Um, in the first, uh, the dose uh, escalation, these patients had to have three plus lines of treatment and then more than 50% expression of BCMA. And then as they added people at the highest dose, they also had to uh, have received daratumab and be refractory through the last regimen. So to summarize, these patients had no good options left. And the median progression-free survival in the 18 patients at the highest dose was 11.8 months. And like Vincent Rajkumar, you know, if he's not on the Mount Rushmore myeloma docs, he's certainly in the conversation. Uh, you talked about how that is double any of the median progression-free survival for, for bortezomib, lenamide, all these other myeloma drugs when they came out, all these other game-changing myeloma drugs. Um, so uh, a lot of people in the myeloma world were impressed with this. Um, of those who had a, a response in that highest group, uh, it was a 95.5% overall response rate uh, if you were in that highest dose, which was 150 uh, times 10 million cells. Um, and of those, half of those responses were complete responses or stringent complete responses uh, or very good partial responses. So people who responded responded pretty well. Small numbers, you question the scalability. Uh, reproducibility. Um, so we'll see uh, this going forward, but certainly uh, exciting for myeloma patients. Uh, now, probably more relevant to practice, something that you might be seeing uh, today in clinic is the ARO study, A.R.R.O.W. which was looking at weekly carfilzomib versus the standard twice week weekly carfilzomib, you know, the day one, day two carfilzomib dosing. Uh, and this was published in the Lancet Oncology. Um, already um, first of June. So this was a phase three study of about 500 patients to, randomized to either 70 milligrams per meter squared uh, once a week of carfilzomib or 27 milligrams per meter squared twice weekly of carfilzomib. And the lower dose was given over 10 minutes per standard. The higher dose, 70 milligrams per meter squared, was given over 30 minutes. And there was a uh, progression-free survival benefit for the higher dose. A median PFS was 11.2 months, 
versus 7.6 months, and that was statistically significant. Um, overall survival data are immature, but the Kappa-Meyer curves don't look promising. They're almost superimposable. Toxicity, a little bit more grade 3 with the higher dose once-weekly group, but you're talking 68% versus 62% grade 3 toxicity. You know, same, same, really. Um, but no big safety signal. So for patients, you're looking at one 30-minute infusion a week versus two 10-minute infusions a week, and uh, on top of uh, some benefit to the once weekly infusion. So something that, uh, you know, if you were in charge of, of order sets uh, in your system or on paper, uh, you'll probably be modifying those quickly uh, for the higher dose once weekly carfilzomib and would require a different infusion rate for the once weekly versus twice weekly. Uh, and then uh, we'll move on to, to just two more kind of hodgepodge studies. One was uh, Carmena. This was a plenary session basically saying that we don't need to do nephrectomies anymore in metastatic renal cell carcinoma patients in uh, the TKI era. I'm a little interested if that would hold true, uh, let's fast forward 10 years from now and say maybe we're not using TKIs anymore and we're just using immunotherapy in renal cell carcinoma if, if uh, there's still no benefit to a nephrectomy because as you reduce the tumor burden, that's where immunotherapy should be most effective. Um, but for now, uh, you know, you're not going to see these people getting nephrectomies, which means they can start their treatment uh, sooner with TKIs. Uh, and then finally, I'll talk about ProDage24. This was a, also a, a practice-changing uh, presentation. So this is looking at a resected pancreatic cancer, so adjuvant pancreatic cancer. Uh, and these patients were randomized to gemcitabine or modified fulfurinox. So not only do we have a new standard of care, but we have a new regimen. So you're probably familiar with fulfurinox for pancreatic cancer. Uh, has about a, you know, in the metastatic setting, like a four-month median overall survival benefit, which is pretty big in metastatic pancreatic cancer. And surprisingly, fulfurinox has held up well in the real, in the real world in community-based practices from a toxicity standpoint. I've seen patients tolerate like 22-some cycles of fulfurinox. Uh, well, modified fulfurinox, uh, is built to have a little bit less toxicity. So the bolus 5-FU is dropped, which should minimize some of the hematologic toxicity. And then midway through this study, the oxaloplatin dose was dropped from 180 to 150 milligrams per meter squared, which should minimize some of the neuropathy toxicity. Well, the median overall survival in the gym group was 35 months, so about three years, and 54.4 months in the modified fulfurinox group. That's more than four years. That's like four and a half years median overall survival for adjuvant pancreatic cancer, which is really, really great. Uh, a little bit less encouraging when you look at the median disease-free survival rate, 12.8 months versus 21.6 months. Um, so you're still seeing, uh, even though patients are living longer, we're still not curing very many because we are seeing uh, the disease come back. But obviously encouraging, people are calling this the new standard of care, uh, modified fulfurinox. Uh, so just like the we had several Fulfox studies and Fulfox 4, Fulfox 6, Fulfox 8, uh, now we've set on the modified Fulfox 6 is what most people get. Now we've got a modified fulfurinox, so a brand new regimen. And I think that's notable. So obviously a lot more at ASCO, 6,000 some abstracts uh, all in total. Uh, so tons of information, big kudos to the folks who went and were live tweeting, made things really easy to follow. Um, some of these things have already been published, uh, as I mentioned, like the Arrow and Lancet Oncology. Um, some of this stuff will come out later and we'll have an uh, opportunity to look and dig into it a little bit deeper. Um, 
and as always, there's there's things going on all the time in oncology pharmacy. Uh, so I'm really excited to have, sh have shared this with you. Hope you enjoy it. And again, I hope to see you all a little further down the road. Thank you.